0: The title for this evening's talk is Practice is Not for Yourself. The practice that we're engaged in here together, in some ways, can be described as the cultivation of wisdom and compassion. And it's very much understood that these two qualities are the primary elements of what we seek to discover, what we seek to cultivate what we seek to bring into this world. And wisdom and compassion are understood in the tradition to be like the two wings of the bird, without either one of which the bird cannot fly. And in the spiritual life, without wisdom and compassion, it is not able to be fulfilled. Wisdom and compassion together express the greatest possibility of our understanding and of our action in the world. And in coming to spiritual practice, coming to meditation, we begin with the intention and engage in the practices, such as we have done here, to develop wisdom, to develop, to deepen in understanding. And we we do so in order to free ourselves from suffering, from unsatisfactoriness, from limitation and bondage. And this wish to free ourselves from suffering, to Free ourselves from the unsatisfactory elements that seem to cast a shadow over our life and over our heart. This arises from a compassion, from a genuine caring for our own welfare, for our well being and happiness. And in the cultivation of wisdom, in order to free ourselves as an expression of compassion, what we also discover is that wisdom leads to compassion that coming from the very understandings that liberate our own being, equally come actions in the world and a way of being in this life, which is for the welfare of all, including ourselves. And so in this way, wisdom and compassion are very closely linked. And in being concerned with the resolution of suffering, of freeing ourselves from separation, limitation, we have to in some ways begin by looking at our tendency to believe in appearances. Our tendency to react and respond to what is only at times a very superficial or limited amount of information about a situation and experience or about ourselves. We tend very easily, judging from superficial surface appearances to form perceptions, to form conclusions and to act on the basis of these conclusions, these views and beliefs. And when we do so, based on misperceptions, we bring ourselves into conflict with the way things are. Our actions are not in harmony with the deeper underlying truth. And therefore we experience what we call suffering what we call a sense of unsatisfactoriness, where we are not in contact with, where we are out of or disconnected from the deeper truth of life, out of touch with it. In the beginning of this year, when we were in a rather chilly period of winter, I was meditating one morning at home and I just opened my eyes after the sitting and a rather brisk breeze was in the air coming through the open window. And as I opened my eyes, I saw on the windowsill, about, I guess, six feet in front of me, a small snail. And I was struck as I saw it by the beauty of this little creature. Its perfectly round, spiral shell, with little delicate markings upon it, and its body seeming so soft, so translucent, so delicate, and its little head with those little feelers on top with the little spots that sort of look like they might be eyes on stalks and they're just sort of waving around. And I just saw the snail there and and my immediate thought was, oh gosh, there's nothing here for that snail to eat, it's come inside. And the window had been opened because in fact I'd, um, even though it was very cold, the window had needed to be trimmed in order to close properly and I just recently trimmed it with a plane and um, repainted it so I'd had to leave it open while the paint dried. And, it was, and I thought, oh gosh, that snail's coming through the open window but there's nothing for it to eat in this house. It can't survive living on that window sill. So I thought, I could put it back outside but it's so cold out there. It probably wouldn't survive outside, I thought. What can I do? This is all happening in a, one or two moments. And then I thought, I know what I can do. I can take it down to the glass house, the greenhouse in the garden which wasn't my, um, my personal greenhouse and I thought well the gardeners might not be too happy about that but it'll be nice and warm and there'll be plenty of food for the snail and I thought what a lovely, what a lovely thing I could do that, I've solved the problem, great. So I started getting out of the meditation posture and leaned over reaching towards the snail and realised it was a wood shaving. and I've been able to see those little feelers <laughs> moving as is it, is it? and this whole story, this whole scenario, this whole problem I created was a wood-shaving. And very often we live our life in a similar way. We form a perception based on a very limited amount of information or not having looked deeply enough into a situation and we start to react, and perhaps we're sometimes reacting with positive and wholesome intentions, though the gardener may have disagreed with me on that one, Um, and other times we see it's not quite so. But in our practice, we are asked in the development of wisdom to actually slow down this process, to look a bit more carefully, to see in our examination of what is going on on a moment-to-moment level if we might recognise a deeper truth in our life that would enable us to reverse the misperceptions which we often are living under. And in reversing those misperceptions, reversing or freeing ourselves from the ways of being in the world which are out of harmony with the way things are, which are out of harmony with the truth of life. When we understand the way things are, we can live in harmony with that. But if we do not, what hope have we? What hope have we? And so we've spoken quite a lot over these days about seeing some of the fundamental truths of what is going on in our experience. Seeing how things change and how if we don't understand that, if we don't really see it clearly and live our life expressing that understanding, and we express it through letting go, through understanding change. If we really understand it, it means we learn to let go. Seeing the unsatisfactory nature of things, seeing that no particular experience can give us lasting satisfaction, can provide us with something that we can take home, so to speak, and keep that will be a permanent solution to our condition that these, when we live not understanding this, constantly seeking after experiences, we live an unsatisfied life. And we've spoken quite a lot about these two elements where we can correct our misperception, the perception of permanence, the perception that things, whether external or internal experiences, can give us lasting satisfaction. And the the other area which we've also spoken of, which we really need to look carefully, is the sense of ourself, of our own existence, that we have, that we so strongly and deeply believe in. To really examine what is this experience? What is this sense that we say is who we are, that claims ownership of this life? What is going on in this? Because if it's not quite the way we think it is, then we're not really going to be able to live well. We're not going to be able to live in harmony with our truth and the truth of life. And so Dharma teachings ask us to explore what this means, what this is about. And the teaching of selflessness is one that often generates a certain amount of intellectual confusion and struggle for people. And to not intellectualize about it, it's not making a position or creating a new belief system to negate an old one. But to look into our own experience to see, what do we find? What does our experience reveal to us? And if we look, if we see deeply and clearly in our own being, we find there is no independent, existing entity in here there's no one in here that we can find there's no little kernel of special separateness that owns all of this that's the the owner of our experience or to whom it all refers and relates what we see is a process what we see is a movement a flow of experience and we've all had a lot of opportunity over these days to observe that flow of experience and how in one moment who we thought we were and the next moment we are nothing like that and then when we think if that's who we are the next moment again is shown to us that that was just temporary for a moment and that really what happens is this flow of experience and a tendency we have to claim it as our own a tendency we have to say this is me this is who I am, it must be and we we believe that, we cling to that belief so strongly So what would it be to question that? What would it be to really, deeply, honestly and fundamentally question that? What are you? What are you if you're not your body? And I once remember reading a piece in a magazine in Thailand which was a a comment from a, a Buddhist monk saying, you already know you are not your body. Perhaps this is the kindergarten of wisdom. He said, But you do not know that you are not your mind. And this can be a bit of a shock to us to contemplate. What might that mean? I'm not my body. Okay, I can live with that. You know, I can see it's sort of something sort of there, this physical thing. It's not really who I am. But I'm not my mind. We feel so identified with the thoughts, with the feelings, with the, the beliefs and the patterns that we, that we see to be or believe to be what we think we are. What is it that we find when we look at it? Free from a belief about owning it, free from a belief that there is something in there which is other than this process of unfolding experience. We see sense impressions, sights and sounds, smells and tastes, touch, thoughts, emotions, images. And we see that they're moving along, that they come and go, changing from one into another, by themselves, not according to our will or our intention, certainly not according to our plans and our hopes. And in this flow we just observe it. Where is I in all of this? The sense of I is just another experience. I am thinking. It's me. I'm like this. I'm like that. It's a thought, just another bubble, just another experience flickering for a moment and passing away, changing to something else. When I was at university, I did a, a psychology paper in my first year, which I rather enjoyed. And one of the, apart from many interesting things where they showed us how our perception is so easily fooled by what we expect to be perceiving. we um. We are given this image once to consider with some relationship to what this, this theme. And this, the Professor suggested that we um, imagine ourselves standing beside a window and you're say, OK, are you in the room? Yeah, of course, we're in the room. OK, put your arm out the window. Are you still in the room? No. Nah. Um, yeah, we're still in the room. OK. Put both arms out the window. Yes, we're still in the room. OK. Put your head in both arms out the window. You're still in the room? Mm, I have to think about it now. Yeah, I think we're still in the room. Okay, poke your torso as well through. So your sort of pelvis is above the window. So are you still in the room? And we're thinking now, it's a bit more difficult. So maybe we're outside the room now. What happens? Somewhere along the line, The sense of me existing inside or outside the room just suddenly shifts. And we might just think, where's the balance point there? What is it that's moved? Is there something that was inside the room that's moved outside the room? Or is it just a way of thinking and talking about it? And we can see just in the simple use of our body, if we identify our body or myself being in the room as being relating to whether my body is in the room. So that's a rather simple proposition to pin down in comparison to pinning down the inner life of thoughts and feelings, to locate them. And if we can't locate them somewhere, how can we really claim ownership of them? How can we really say that they are mine? Where is the body that you had in the past? Where has it gone? This isn't it. Ten years ago, it didn't look this way. When we were five years old, it didn't look anything like this. Where is it gone? And where is the body that you will have in ten years' time, or twenty, if we're so fortunate as to still be alive, and there's no guarantee of that? Where is it? We can't find it. Where are the thoughts and the experiences that you've had in the past? So many of them. So significant it would seem. So important. Where are they? Can you find even one of them now? You can remember it. That's a memory. That's happening now. A memory of the past. But there's nothing there. It's just dissolved. We call it history. And it's history. It's gone. And the thoughts the experiences that you will have, even those you will have in the very next minute or moment. Can you find them now? Can you get a grip or a grasp upon them? No. And yet, when we think about it, when we don't stop and really reflect and look carefully, there's a sense of so much solidity. We have this sense of self, this basis of ideas, of beliefs of images, of roles, the things we like, the things we don't like, the habits that we've built up over a lifetime, those ones that we appreciate and those that we wish we could get rid of. And we see that we've got this whole movement of history which we look back over, that briefly pauses, if we're lucky, for a moment in the present, and then extends out into the future through the amazing capacity of our imagination. And that's all it is, the future. imagination we're making it up and and in this rather ephemeral thing that we create this rather substanceless thing that we create through our thinking we have this perception we have this belief we have this idea that somehow there's me in all of that but we can't find anything like that we just have this idea and we have this idea that this me that's in there that owns it or that it describes or defines in some way, is somehow separate from all of that process, from all of that experience. Is somehow removed from the totality of life, distinguished from everything else by some special mark of uniqueness. And if we live our life based on this belief, on this perception, this idea, without really investigating it, without checking to see it, if it's actually the truth then we have a very high risk of living our life in confusion and in suffering confusion because this is not how it is suffering because if we live our life based on this idea of separateness we find ourselves constantly in conflict, in conflict with the way things are constantly out of step with the movement of life we find ourselves when we when we believe in the sense of i we find ourselves driven to gratify all the movements of wanting of craving of fear and aversion that arise within us and we can see our minds at times on a retreat how they get incredibly caught up in sometimes very insignificant things how just The fact that someone walked a little too close to us while we were mindfully meditating, walking backwards and forth, and we feel, gosh, what did they do that for? God, they're inconsiderate. Ah, And our mind makes a whole story about it. Or we start to think, gosh, I I hope they'll put out the raspberry jam for dinner tonight. And we see, you know, that apricot's all right, but I really like the raspberry jam. And our mind gets so concerned about things that can be rather insignificant. We might laugh at them from another time or place. And yet what it really shows to us is the power of this wanting and this aversion. And it doesn't come by itself, this wanting and aversion and the power it has isn't happening in isolation. It's always, I want, I don't like, I'm afraid of. What would it be to take the I out? What is it if it's just not liking? What is anger, rather than I am angry, if it's, this is anger. This is anger, seeing what it is, this is anger, rather than I am angry. What difference might that make to our experience? And equally, a movement of, of, of greed, of, of really craving for something. I want this, I need it, I must have it, I can't live without it. And we just see rather than I want this, just wanting. Yeah, wanting, yeah, yeah. We've seen wanting plenty of times. What would it be to take the I out of it? Wei Wu Wei, a Chinese mystic and sage, was asked by one of his students, why do we suffer? And Wei Wu Wei replied, why do you suffer? You suffer because 99.9% of what you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. If we see and as we come to understand that there is no owner of all this, then we're no longer compelled to act on all those movements of fear, those movements of desire. We're no longer entangled by confusion and disconnection. We simply recognise the flow of life moving. Wanting and fear have no power without our identifying with them. It's the identifying that gives it the power Apart from that, it's just ripples in consciousness, movements in the music of life. And when there's no owner of experience, and we don't take hold of any particular piece of it and claim it as who we are, not only do we free ourselves from the power of fear, the power of desire, not only are we liberated from that, But what we also start to realise is, and to experience, when we don't claim hold of a part of life, this part, this body, this mind, this experience, we don't grasp at that, then we don't separate ourselves from all of the rest of life. It's that process of grasping hold of a particular that creates separation, that creates division and disconnection. And the sense of inner poverty, inner lack that comes from that separation, that disconnection. When we don't identify with part of life, there's no boundary. There's no boundary in life. We realise and we come to understand life as something that we are not just even a part of because that's almost not quite going far enough. We're part of a totality and yet it's more true to say that we are that totality not even just a part of it and, and in, that, in that sense of totality in that sense of connection in that sense of relationship which even goes beyond relatedness because again relatedness are just two things connecting and we start to sense it's not even that it's, it's just connection itself and no two things involved no two separate things connected. But we start to see everything, everything within us, everything around us, as in fact part of who we are. That letting go of a sense of a limited identity of me in a very particular way is not loss of existence or annihilation or denial of life, but in fact it's the embracing and the opening to all of life, the including, including the inclusivity of life itself, of which we are a unique expression, and yet no way separate or removed from the totality of. We see each part of life as ourself, our own truth, in just another form, in just another way of manifesting in this world. There's a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh I'd like to read. Thich Nhat Hanh is a rather lovely and wonderful Vietnamese Zen monk, and this poem is called Please Call Me By My True Name." Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river and I am the bird which when spring comes arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond And I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself upon the frog. And I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee in a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once. So I can see that my joy and my pain are but one. Please call me by my true names so that I can wake up and so that the door of my heart can be left open. The door of compassion To see all of life as what we are. To realize, to understand non-separation is to open the door of our heart to the natural flow of compassion that arises, that moves from within our being to touch life around us when we really deeply understand that we are part of all of this. That we are not separate from it as we have thought, as we have believed. And that the natural expression of wisdom is in fact compassion. Wisdom that understands in its depth and in its essence that we are not separate, reveals itself in the world in actions, of speech, of thought, of body to care for, to serve the welfare and the well-being and to relieve the suffering of all that lives. Compassion is that quality of heart and mind of being which is opposed to cruelty, which wishes to relieve pain and suffering of others and equally of oneself. It's nothing to do with pity, which is very easily a sense of creates a sense of distance in someone else's pain. But it's very much more a recognition of the shared nature of suffering, of pain, and of loss in life. A recognition of that shared nature of suffering. It's expressed even in the world, in the word compassion. Passion, in fact, means suffering. In the Christian tradition, they talk of the passion of Christ during his crucifixion, for suffering and calm to, to be with, together, bonded in relationship through suffering. But when we recognise the shared nature of suffering, we see someone else's suffering as simply a reflection of our own pain, our own suffering, and vice versa. And that seeing that recognising of that connection actually And that sharedness of suffering, it actually brings us closer together. Rather than separating us or dividing us, rather than pain, whether experienced inwardly or observed in another, rather than that having the effect of creating distance and pushing us apart, it actually brings us together when we realise that it's shared, when we we realise that it's not mine or yours, but that in fact it belongs to life, equally as we belong to life. And compassion isn't a feeling in itself, in its essence. It can include feelings of tender, raw, open, quivering-hearted sort of feelings within us. It can definitely include all of that, but the absence of that does not mean the absence of compassion. Compassion in its essence is a response, a response that comes from the heart, A response that understands our relationship and our intimate bonding with life. That responds seeking to bring relief, to bring healing, to bring ease and well-being. Wherever it encounters suffering, in another and equally in one's own being. And it can express itself in actions, of course, in kind words which have so much power. And equally in a simple thought that may arise, such as in the loving-kindness meditations we do, when we wish that someone or all beings be free of pain and suffering, this is actually a compassionate act. That movement of thought is an action in response to pain in the world. And sometimes we're not always able to act, but we can still respond. We're not able to always solve, to cure the suffering, to fix the pain that we see around us, or at times within us, but we still respond. And as Ryokan, the Japanese Zen monk who lived in the Middle Ages, once said, I mean, just, it, so me beautifully evoking this, just this aspiration, this wish to care, he said once, oh that my monk's robe was broad enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. That aspiration of heart to gather up all the suffering beings and bring them into one's robes, hold them close to one's heart, to one's being, to really care for them. This is actually a compassionate response. And this response becomes possible for us as, and to the degree, that we open to and allow ourselves to feel the depth of our own pain. And we no longer react and resist and disconnect from the inner experiences of pain, which are in fact the only experience of pain we can know directly. But what we find is that in opening to our own pain, we equally open to the pain of others, to the degree we can be with our own sadness and suffering, our own grief and our loss, to that degree we can also be with the suffering of others. And and that there's a, a way in which when we when we do this, quite naturally we find we find ways to respond. We do find a response coming from us when we're not afraid of, when we're not in reaction to the pain, but when we open to it. And in fact, although it is pain that we directly experience, that is our pain, that we feel, what we also see is that if we're open, if we're connected, then in fact to be exposed, to be aware of the pain of another, is to feel pain in ourselves, is to actually be, be exposed to raw and tender feelings. And yet we don't turn away from that because we realize this is an expression of our connectedness, our relatedness and our deeper truth so what do we do? what do we do? when we face the pain around us in the world the poverty the exploitation the injustice the war the prejudice and the inequality what do we do? What do we do when we face the pain at times within us? The grief, the sorrow, the depression, the misery, the anger and the bitterness? Responding compassionately means doing what we can. It's not always about some grand vision of utopia, which we somehow miraculously solve all the problems of the world, but doing what we can. There's a story about a um, a young man who was walking on the beach one day. And on the beach there were hundreds upon hundreds of starfish which had been thrown up by an unusually high tide on a stormy night. And the tide was going out. The day was dawning blue and bright. And these starfish were going to die on the beach. And this young man was walking along picking up the starfish and just throwing it into the water. Another man walking along the beach saw him and said, What are you doing? And the man said, I'm throwing these starfish back in. They'll die otherwise. And he says, What are you doing? Look, there's thousands of these starfish. What difference can you make throwing them in? It's just a drop in the ocean, a drop in the bucket. Why why bother? And the, man, the younger man picked another one up and threw it back in the ocean. He said, What difference are you making? What difference does that make? Picking up another starfish and throwing it in, the young man said, "It's made a difference to that one. And sometimes it seems there's just too much for us to cope with, too much for us to deal with in our lives or in the life and the world around us. But just one step at a time, just one action at a time is all we are ever asked to do all we ever can do, all we ever need to do. I had an experience a little bit like this myself one journey in India. I was in Calcutta and I decided to pay a visit to uh, Shishi Bhavan, which is the home run by the Order of Mother Teresa. She was still alive then. And this is uh, Shishi Bhavan, this children's home. Bhavan is home, Shishi children. And it was an orphanage for young children of Calcutta whose parents had died, and generally very poor children or from poor situations who didn't have relatives who could care for them. And there were young boys and girls. But what struck me, and what I'd like to just relate, and just going to visit to spend some time there and be with these people, was this room that they had for the baby. And this room was perhaps twice the size of this meditation, or similar width, twice as long. And in this room were rows upon rows of little cots. And there was probably about one, two, three, maybe six cots across the room and going back maybe 10, 12, I don't know, 15 cots down the length of the room. And in each cot were two babies. And the staff at this at this place were very busy, the sisters. They they barely had time, rushing all day, to feed all these babies, to give them their food, to change them and to keep them clean. That's all they had time for. When you come into this room, these little babies, some of them I don't know, because I don't think they were growing at the usual speed, but they were probably ranging sort of six to eight months, up to maybe a year, year and a half. You came into the room, these little babies would start to pull themselves up on the rails of the side of the um, of the cots, those that could, and the ones that couldn't would be lying or sitting on the cots, and their arms would go out reaching, reaching up. And you could just, it's it, it incredibly powerful when you realise that no one had time to pick up these babies and hold them. And this whole room full of babies just starting to reach up when you came close. And I was with a friend and we just looked at each other almost stunned by the enormity of this. And what could we do? So we go up to a cot, pick up a baby. And these babies, it was like a clam going <laughs> You could tell they wanted to be there. And just holding it for a while. Just holding this baby. And then the room full of b sort of them to almost prise it off, put it down, pick up another one and <laughs> stand there for a while. We did it for a long time. But in the end we had to leave. We probably had picked up a quite a small proportion of the babies in the room. And Something like that both breaks the heart wide open and heals it in a rather miraculous way. To do what we can is all that we're asked to do and to never, ever be dissuaded from doing what you can, from responding in whatever way is possible by the view or the belief that you cannot do enough or that you cannot do all that you would wish to. the understanding of non-separateness, the understanding of our deep and intimate connection, this expresses itself in wisdom and in compassion in the way we live our lives and in a way in which we see very clearly that our practice is not something personal. It's not for me. It doesn't leave us out in any way but yet it leaves nothing of life out either. If it is to be truly rich, fulfilling and authentic, it must include and embrace the totality. Our practice is very much for the benefit of all of life. Nithagadatta Maharaj, an Indian saint, once said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. To understand with wisdom that I am nothing, that what we call I-self is empty, there's nothing there, there's nothing there, is not understanding that says there's an absence or a lack or something missing or something removed that we've lost it's an understanding an absence or an emptiness of separation an emptiness of being in any way disconnected and to understand that what we are is in fact everything that love tells us we are everything this is to understand inter- interconnectedness to understand our relationship to life and that we see in this that emptiness is in fact what creates, what enables us to understand fullness. That letting go of individuality is what actually reveals totality. And we see in this that wisdom and compassion are actually two sides of the same coin. They're actually just the inner and outer expressions of the same truth the inner expression of understanding that allows our life to harmonize with the truth of things and the outer expression of action where we work where we care for the welfare of all of life they flow from the same place they spring out of the same truth out of the same fundamental and essential reality of life and from the recognition that there are truly no boundaries, no limitations and no divisions. And when we understand this, we see, we realize, we understand and we experience a life that is boundless, that is unbounded. Where there are no boundaries, there is no limitation. When boundaries dissolve, when the illusion of boundaries dissolve, freedom is revealed as our very nature and truth a freedom that manifests and expresses itself as a very natural wisdom and compassion in our lives to realize this truth is to be bound to nothing, bound by nothing, and yet totally intimate, totally connected, totally enlightened by all things. Can we sit for a minute or two, please, quiet? May all beings see the emptiness of self. May all beings realize the truth of interconnectedness. May all beings discover life's freedom.